the power dynamics are not going to switch. So when we see uh, a person being charged with domestic violence, when she has been a victim of domestic violence by the same person before, I can pretty much guess she was actually defending herself, retaliating, or an anticipating an assault. But she's the one who caused the injuries. It's amazing to me how, as a species, humans are reactive when it's yeah. when it's finally gotten to a melting point we generally start to coalesce and try to find a solution as yeah. rather than dealing with it early yeah. on like you're talking about there's a lot of shame involved in it too from the victim's side you know and yes. so much work like okay for me to get out of this situation which who do i talk to what what are the agencies that will help me what red tape do i need to go right. through so it's probably this insurmountable mountain that i'll just right survive and through this. Hello, you're listening to Connect, Collaborate, and Create with Lisa and Devo. Each week on our podcast, we will discuss and dissect ways we are attempting to live our best life through our business, our personal lives, and connections and relationships we forge that make us successful. Our goal is to share, inspire, create, and cultivate thought around topics that will enable you to live your best life. Good morning, everyone. Devo here with Lisa. We are in different offices today, so we're on the uh, web conference sharing two chat rooms. We have a fantastic guest joining us today from impactdv.org. Her name is B. Cote, and she's coming on to talk about the invisible side of domestic violence. She has started a fantastic program a few years back, and she, we're going to get into that a little bit more. But rather than focusing on the systemic issue of domestic abuse, child abuse from the abused perspectives, her organization gets to what she believes is the root of the problem by focusing and working directly with the abusers, which is an interesting turn of events in terms of how how an issue is dealt with because that's not typically how we manage issues, right, Lise? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. She's getting to the core of things, and I think she'll she'll talk more about it. Um, reading through her notes, she's just so interesting. But I think the the mentality behind everything usually is like, oh, the victims, the victims, and not in any way making light of that. But she's getting right to the core that will help improve the victims' lives. Yeah, so you and I kind of stumbled into this. Well, not stumbled. You and I were having a conversation a couple of months back about some data that I had come across on the interwebs around the rising numbers of domestic abuse, the rising numbers of child abuse, sex trafficking, things of that nature um, that was directly correlated with the pandemic of corona. Mm -hmm. And so I did a little digging into into the data and started making a few phone calls, had some conversations with B about this. And lo and behold, there there's something to that. And so we thought we'd have a fantastic conversation with people being quarantined and locked down in their in their homes and not able to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Victims don't have victims who are already being abused. Mm-hmm had less of an had less of an yeah. opportunity to escape yeah locked up basically and the abusers who typically are involved with drugs and alcohol and other paraphernalia were locked in the same space with mm -hmm. their victims and Children everybody are able to go to school so it was the makings for a perfect storm mm -hmm. and so the data uh, has shown 
significant spikes. And we're going to talk a little bit about B, uh, talk to B a little bit about that and what people can do about that and some of the stuff that she's doing. But I just have some some data that I had pulled together on on domestic abuse and, and child abuse and all that sort of stuff. And it's it's honestly numbers that are akin to a pandemic of its own. Absolutely. We talk about viruses, but how is this any different? And and we're also talking about the fact that it's it's horrific enough that these people are locked together with with no means of escape, but you're adding on to it all of the horrible anxiety ridden factors that came along with with this pandemic that employment situations all, all these anxiety things that that are making it hard for everyone it's it's exponentially worse for these victims yeah so every uh, this is just a couple of data i'm reading straight from uh, various websites so every minute 20 people on average are victims of domestic abuse 243 million women and girls between the ages of 15 and 49 worldwide were subjected to sexual or physical violence by an intimate partner in the last year alone. So this is a this is a pandemic of its own making that's been going on for thousands of years, to be honest with you, at the hands of mostly male abusers and tormentors. There's another side of it. It's not always just male, but primarily male. So B's program takes these abusers, some of which are in jail, and she takes them through an intensive therapy-based therapy program that ultimately ends up in them graduating from the program and becoming counselors for a new set of men who are enrolled in the program. Pretty mm -hmm. fantastic, right? That's brilliant. So one of the things that you and I wanted to chat about real briefly with before we brought her on was what role do you think today social media has on domestic violence and domestic abuse? Well, I think as with all things, we're seeing more of a trend to people bringing these, these issues to light. For a long time, it's just been, you know, the highlights reel. But in the last month, we've seen it used for, uh, better purposes for bringing to light situations that are happening and bringing these honest issues to light. Do you agree? I agree. I think there's two sides. I think social media, like anything, has two purposes, good and bad, if you will. I think from a perspective of negative impacts, cyberbullying, the ability to expose somebody who's already been a victim of, of abuse, and because of the transparency of social media, and because of the ability for anyone and everyone to find out a lot of information online, if you're already a victim of domestic abuse, social media can serve to exacerbate that. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many ways if you're a victim to be um, stalked. If you're not smart about it, people can watch where you are, what you're doing, and get so much information. And even if you block someone, it's so easy for someone to create a false account and still get into your social media and still be. So even just thinking that you're blocking someone from your life doesn't necessarily mean that they're still not getting in and seeing everything that you're doing. I was reading a story, and I believe this happened in Florida, uh, for a woman who was a victim of domestic abuse. She had finally found a way out of her home. 
and I believe she was living with her parents. This happened roughly a year ago, and her abuser was trying to track her down but couldn't successfully find her. So he took videos, homemade amateur videos that, of the two of them, and started posting them all over social media so that and tagging her friends and all that sort of stuff so they so in, in order to basically they were calling it revenge pornography mm-hmm. and so so he was stalking her trying to find her etc he couldn't so he resorted to this form of of uh exposure and posted all these videos that they had made together while they were a couple some of them were i've never seen them i've just read about it and then she ended up killing herself and so it's a horrible story with a horrible outcome, but this sort of stuff with cyber stalking and revenge pornography and people kind of utilizing social media in a negative capacity, it happens mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate because, because it's become such a prevalent issue, it's almost like eh, it happens every day, so what do you do, right? So we've become desensitized to it, whereas corona has taken front and center, uh, anything else, polit- politics, front and center, this in of itself has more victims that are affected by it worldwide every year than Corona 10 times over. And yet we never even talk about it. We don't hear about it. We don't. It's never in the headlines. I'm not sure how B even gets funding. Well, I think she's going to talk about that because that's one of the problems mm-hmm. she's suffering from. So before we bring her in, there are ways that social media can work positively f- f- from my perspective in terms of outreach groups in terms of finding communities online where victims can, and there's, and B's going to give us some of those yeah. resources. So if you're a victim of domestic abuse, there are lots of ways where social media, you can find outlets to help you, mm-hmm. whether it's just one-on-one conversations or actual physical centers where you can go down. Yeah. To. And whether it's yourself or someone that you're concerned about as well. Absolutely. So I think that to answer the question that we presented ourselves with social media can work both ways as it can with anything. And if you're being abused, there are resources out there. And hopefully people that listen to this, whether you're an abuser or an abusee, will realize that there are patterns to this and that there are resources that can help both sides of, of, the, of the coin. Agreed? Agreed. And I'm really excited to hear Bee's take on this and all that she does. She has an uncanny um, sense of humor as well. <laughs> she is an uncanny sense of no filter. So my kind of woman. (laughs) All right, B. So you should have an option from us. We just invited you back into the webcam. So if you can just accept that, we will bring in. B, can you hear us? Can we have our producer get on the line with her? No, I told you this is a problem. Hey, B. All right. Well, I'm just going to have to reach out and give her a phone call real quickly. I don't know why she's not hearing us. So, Can I read through right now as you're doing that? Or do you want to, like her introduction? I love what she wrote about herself. Go ahead. <laughs> B says she's... She says, I'm bewildered, often confused, and well-intentioned 61-year-old woman who was a late bloomer, so is really just halfway through my career and just starting to work on some of my shit. (laughs) I am a huge extrovert and night owl who crashes on Sundays, has a big family, a French mother who is the poster child for acts of service, and a motley crew of friends who try, bless their hearts, 
She's pretty much run out of fucks of what people think of her, but not for social issues. And she's ramping up. And she says she exists because of her 101-year-old grandma mare and her mom, who's 80 years old. So she's got a lot of work that she's doing and uh, doesn't sound like she's going to slow down anytime soon. No, if she's going to live to be 101 plus, she's going to be doing this sort of benevolent work for some time. So that's fantastic. She's, and I she's don't know- just hit her stride. <laughs> She's not hit her stride on joining the web conference, so we're going to have to give her a demo on this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, B, where are you, girlfriend? All right, we're having some technical difficulties here. Sorry about this. So um, I, I did confirm with her on her name, by the way. Obviously, you just read that. She's French, so it is Cote. There she is. I see okay. a bounce in the screen. Hey, you joined. You made it. We, we can't hear you, girlfriend. Audio. Nope. No audio yet. I feel like this was a plague this morning because I was affected with it as well earlier. How about that? Yay. Yay. (laughs) Click a button and there we are again. So she is a bewildered, often confused, well-intentioned 61-year-old woman when it comes to audiovisual. We all are. Right. Okay. So there's the disclaimer, right? (laughs) So I'm good. (laughs) Thank you for joining us this morning. I've been excited to have a conversation with you for a couple of weeks since we spoke back in early May. So this is a topic Lisa and I had been talking around table just in casual conversation on the rise of this and you don't see a lot of information about not just because of corona but in general you don't really hear a lot about domestic abuse anymore because we've become desensitized to it because it's so normal right well it's normal for other people not Mm -hmm. for us Mm -hmm. and so you know as long as we can think about it as happening to other people then we don't really have to deal with it and it's a really uncomfortable topic for us and thank you for having me on by the way i've really appreciated Absolutely. So tell me how it's uncomfortable too. Yeah. Like it's not a glamorous thing to be talking about, right? People don't want to hear about that. They want to hear what the Kardashians are doing. Right. Right. And now if the Kardashians were involved in a domestic violence situation, we'd be all over that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So are you a native North Carolinian or did you have roots somewhere outside of the Carolinian? You know, I was an Air Force brat and uh, my mom is from France and so my dad was stationed there, you know, and uh, and they got married when she was 17. Um, and so I was born in, in Georgia, actually, at the Air Force Base down in, in Georgia, but uh, did all my earlier um, growing up in education in France. And so that's actually my native language, but uh, I don't speak it nearly as well as I do English now. So, yeah. So, but uh, I lived in South Carolina <clears throat> um, from the age of 10 on. And so I consider myself a, a South Carolinian. So I'm fascinated about the program that you've started. It's called Impact and yep. Impact. Dot, is it DV? Is that correct? The word ImpactDV.org, and, and so Impact Family Violence Services. Yeah, and you started this. I did. This is, uh-huh. I did in 2007. Mm-hmm. And so, how many 
how many abusers, and we're going to get to the how it works, how many abusers have you worked with over the years? since? Oh, gosh, I haven't looked at that number. My program is relatively small, but before this, I, uh, I ran a, a very large program um, in the area. And so, I, gosh, I would say I've probably worked with uh, over 5,000 abusers and in all. And some of these men are in prison, have been imprisoned, and you work with them. No, are they all well? Pre if that that's kind of a myth, and so we really have not criminalized uh, domestic violence very well. An example I gave on social media yesterday, because there, you know, there's a whole movement to defund the police, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that uh, is people saying that we need to decriminalize domestic violence, that we need to send social workers or counselors out into the homes instead of police. Really bad idea, really bad idea. Um, the reason is because these situations are so volatile and they're a lot of them are crimes and most domestic violence isn't even criminal in nature and so by the time it rises to the level of being criminal it's really bad and only about the studies vary between, I think, 8% uh, and 15%, um, all the way up to 25, actually, of serious domestic violence assaults are even called into the police. And so, you know, what are all those, uh, where are those, those women, or mostly women who are being assaulted when the police aren't being called? They deal with it. And that's what we're doing if we're asking to decriminalize uh, domestic violence. So let's say, Lisa, you went to a bank and the bank was robbed. Would you be expected to negotiate with the bank robber as a mm -hmm. victim? Mm -hmm. Would you be asked why you were there? Why you went to that bank knowing it had been robbed before? Why were you wearing what you were wearing to go to the bank? And then if you don't show up in court to testify, can you go to jail? So, but that's the way we treat victims. Mm -hmm. And yet they're victims of the same level crime in many cases but we treat them completely differently because of their relationship with the abuser. Mm -hmm. And um, any kind of uh, idea about negotiation, cooling off, all assumes that the victim has the equal power in the relationship to make those changes. And they don't. In most cases, they've already done everything they could to try and de-escalate it. Can I go back to your opening statement? You said most domestic violence is not criminal in nature. So are you saying it's not classified technically as criminal because it's not processed into the system? Or are no. you saying that is, no, that what you're getting, saying, is that what you're getting at? No, I'm like, uh, for instance, I use something called the power and, power and control wheel right here. Uh -huh. And what that shows is that in the middle is that most domestic violence is caused by a need to assert dominance in the relationship and that all the abuse comes from that whatever the entitlement is. There is something that says that they have a right to abuse her at that point in time. 
whatever that entitlement is, and that's what we look at in the program. But if you'll see that most domestic violence um, is not physical in nature, there's only a black ring on the outside that says physical violence and sexual violence. Almost everything on the inside, those are all tactics that people use to abuse, but hardly any of those are criminal in nature. Give me an example. Um, verbal abuse, making her feel like crap about herself, uh, confining her to the house, isolating her from her friends and family, um, making it so she can't go to work. Um, gosh, there's so many on there. Oh, uh, I know what. How about controlling whether or not she has children? So, Lee, so, sorry if I have if you have a question. How, no, how does the thing, there, there's a lot of shame involved in it too from the victim's side, you know, and yes. so much work. Like, okay, for me to get out of this situation, which who do I talk to? What what are the agencies will, that will help me? What red tape do I need to go right. through? So it's probably this insurmountable mountain that I'll just right. survive and through this. And most people don't recognize this other stuff as being abusive. So how are victims going to know what's going on? Mm -hmm. Unless she's being beaten, she may not know what's going on. And she may just think that she's not a good person. She's not a good wife if she did things better. And so somehow um, it, it, she deals with it, you know, because she has no substance to call it. Um, to call it domestic violence, because the billboards show women with black eyes. She doesn't have black eyes. He's never beat her. He's may, he may have strangled her. He may have raped her. You know, but as long as, so what victims tend to do is they tend to not see the pattern until far down the line. They, what they do is they silo the abuse. So, for instance, um, he may push her one week, right? Maybe even their wedding night. He's never done anything like this before. He pushes her. Well, he's never done anything like this before. And he feels really bad about it and promises it won't happen again. The next week, he trips her. That doesn't fit in any kind of conversation she's ever had about domestic violence, right? So still, that's the first time he's ever done anything like that. The next week he strangles her. And by the way, if somebody has their hands around your throat or their arm around your throat, it's not choking, it's strangulation. Choking's when you've got something caught in your throat. So let's say he strangles her the third week. Well, he's, this is the first time he's ever done anything like this. So still for her, there's no pattern. And she wants the man back that she fell in love with. So she's trying hard to get that guy back. She's doing whatever she needs to do, not knowing that that guy wasn't the real guy, that the one she's with now is. So and it's almost it's while. almost a it's almost a slow crescendo, a buildup <laughs> where the woman or the victim becomes desensitized. Bingo. Right. So at, at at what point at what point does that desensitization desensitization occur? So. 
And and how does a woman, or it, it's this is primarily gender based, male female, right? It, there are I'm, cer I'm certain there are other cases. I where, only uh, work with men, and so I do talk about domestic violence uh, in in gender terms. And overwhelmingly, it is a gender problem. It is it is a problem of men's violence against women. And I don't discount the fact that there are abusive women, um, and there are. Um, but for the most part, it's the men who are caught causing the physical injuries and the murders to the uh, to the tune of about 95%. So back to my slow crescendo. So this slow crescendo is building and by the time the actual violence or the sexual assault proclivity occurs at that point it's almost too late she's she's in so far over her head that that's that's right. why it happened and he may never he may never assault her he may be able to control her with these other non-criminal acts of domestic violence forever. Do you remember that movie Enough? Do you remember? I, I don't movie? watch a lot of movies, so okay. I don't know Lisa. It's an old, it? old movie with, uh, what's her name, Julie, Julia, anyway. Julia Roberts. Yeah, Julia Roberts, an old yeah, old sleeping, yeah. with, sleeping with the enemy sleeping or with something. Enemy. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Uh, enough was the other one, but um, that movie shows a uh, a man who strategically uses um, um, gaslighting and obfuscation to control her uh, with just the occasional act of uh, physical assault until it ramps up and gets bad. And so some of these guys may be able to control her. We have a guy. Um, from several years back who started the program and didn't finish and his wife is never going to leave him because she knows exactly which kitchen floor tile she's allowed to walk on. So at what point do you get involved in the process, this slow crescendo? Where are you stepping in to get involved? And how are you even getting involved if it's not classified as a criminal activity? Are these women that are reaching out to you first? Is that where it begins? Um, sometimes that happens. Um, so in my, uh, I'm in five counties right now. I was in, in uh, eight. But, uh, so I offer my program in all the counties. Most of the time they are referred by the courts or by Child Protective Services and uh, in those other counties. In Charlotte, what I'm seeing is about half of my clients are self-referred or uh, referred by therapists, couples counselors, or by the victim. And uh, many of those uh, have not been physical um, in nature, but we still work with that. And it doesn't matter because what we're looking at is the underlying uh, core beliefs what is the belief system that led these guys to uh, feel entitled to abuse her? And then we take apart that whole core belief and start replacing it with some new information um, and, and give them the tools that they need to make the changes. But yeah, a lot of our guys have never been physically abusive, at least the Charlotte guys. Can we talk a little bit about what these guys look like? Because I think, again, when, we're, when we distance ourselves from these situations, because we always think the people that we surround ourselves with aren't the people that we see in the movies that are doing this. So they right. look a certain way. They um, are from a certain social bracket and all of that. And you right. had mentioned a few things that these people that are trying to, to you know, exert their power 
that sometimes the more powerful the person, that's that's that that uh, yeah user. yeah. So um, because uh, a lot of men who crave power will seek positions that give them power, they'll seek professions that give them power. Um, we uh, often end up with. I, I have one group I, I kind of jokingly call my corporate group um, because almost every single guy in that group is a leader in their business. And, uh, and so what happens is that society has given them permission a long time ago. And then you add the extra authority that they get uh, from their jobs and, you know, you have the makings of an abuser regardless of whether or not he's ever hit her. And so uh, sometimes with their wives, with what these kind of corporate guys, their wives are very informed and they seek information and they read books and they're the ones who tell him, you need to get some help or I'm not coming back or you need to get some help or I'm leaving. Um, and that's what we see with, uh, with the upper income learners. But in terms of what these guys look like, they look like whoever you're standing next to in the elevator, uh, whoever you're standing next to shopping at Walmart or Whole Foods. Um, that's who they look like. I was reading in your bio on your onboarding form that you were a victim of uh, domestic violence with a live-in boyfriend many years ago. So yeah. this was that the catalyst for, for how you got into this work? No, no, I, absolutely not. Uh, what happened is that I was working as a child protective social worker when we in the 90s when we first started um, looking at domestic violence as being a much bigger piece of the uh, child abuse puzzle than we had ever thought before. And so uh, I wanted to go get trained on it so that I could start taking more of the domestic violence cases when I was there. And that's how I got started um, in uh, in doing the work um, as as an advocate, really. And I think that the only people who can work with the abusers well are those who um, have a history of advocacy for the victims, who kind of understand it um, and and are here to protect the victims to make their lives safer as much as they can. And so that's how I got into doing the work. The, uh, the abuser I was in a relationship with was that was 30, 35 years ago. And so and I never defined myself as a victim because it was a one time, uh, one person uh, situation. And, uh, and I did get out. But looking back, I got out in all the right ways. I opened up a post office box and a bank account without him knowing about it so that I could squirrel money away uh, without him knowing and then um, and then left with the money that I had uh, secreted away. And you don't do that in good relationships, you know, but it didn't occur to me because he never beat me. And so it didn't occur to me for a very long time that I was a domestic violence victim. Can I go back to Lisa's question? What do they look like? So in terms of, of the, it's, it's a systemic issue and it comes yep. in large doses and small doses. Mm -hmm. Are you able to recognize those patterns right away when you see something physically or is this a no. deep dive mm -hmm. into it? No. no. Uh, when they come to me, you mean, or uh, as a victim and advocate, do victims see the pattern? 
Well, I guess that there's two points to that question. If you were to see a couple walking on the street or you were to be observing, because I'm assuming you're an observational woman. If yeah. you were sitting watching people, are you able to pick up on physical nonverbal cues of a couple and be like, I think there's some activity going on with those people? Is that something that's observational? Maybe, but quite frankly, when I take my work hat off, which I have to do to protect myself, uh, when I take my work hat off, I'm not B who works with abusers. I'm just B. And so I'm not looking at them for that. So I may not notice it. Now, if it's really obvious, for instance, if he's ordering her around and telling her what to do, generally really controlling, then yeah. Yeah. Um, and if he's really rude to other people, he's probably even worse to her. Um, and so yeah, those those kind of things I'm going to pick up on, but so would other people. They just may not translate it. They may not go further than, oh, he's such a dick, right, to I bet he abuses her at home. Mm-hmm. I would do that, but other people may not. Were you going to say something, Lise? No, I just like listening to how she's playing things. So I'm curious about I'm really curious about the process of how you how you advise and counsel abusers. So let's just pretend a woman comes to you, reports that they're under domestic violence or there's situational occurrences going on. Where do you step in? How do you get involved and how do you convince a male who's the abuser? to step into your therapist chair so that you can work with him. And I mean that metaphorically, of course. Right. So um, I'm not a therapist in this program. I mean, I am a therapist. I'm a dually licensed therapist, but that domestic violence is not a mental, mental illness. And so we don't diagnose people. Um, There is no diagnosis for being abusive. It's about entitlement. It's about power and control. It's about behavior and not mental illness. And therefore, our programs are not clinical in nature, which also means that we can't bill insurance, right? And uh, we, have, we have fewer limitations as far as, um, as our privacy and confidentiality as well. Our main object is to make the victim safer. So we do have a lot of communication as much as the victim will allow. Uh, We will notify her that he's in the program. Uh, We'll let her know of any changes to his status in the program. And we will also uh, alert her if we have her contact information, if there's anything that he says in group that causes us concern for her safety in addition to the past abuse. But go back to that question. So if it's not criminalized, if it's not classified as criminal activity and there is no charges that are pressed, how do you get involved with the man? How do you get a male who is abusing a woman in a relationship to get into your program? How, How does that process work? Okay, so uh, like I said, a lot of them, especially in my other counties, are uh, court mandated. Um, And they can also be sent not just by the criminal courts, but on restraining orders. Um, So it is criminal. So it has been criminalized by the time you reach them. 
Sometimes, right. But yeah, so my point is, can you imagine how many others there are out there? I do this little numbers thing when I do training, and I put up some numbers on the board. Um, and I haven't been able to get statistics lately from the police department, but those are supposed to be available to every citizen. So uh, a few years ago, um, the calls for service in Charlotte for domestic violence were 40,000 a year. Okay. Let's say I do social work math, okay, so I can do 10%. I can't do 7 to 25%, but I can do 10%. Let's say that only that, that 40,000 reflects 10% of the serious criminal acts of domestic violence that there are in our community. That would mean that there are 400,000 assaults mostly of women, criminal acts of domestic violence, mostly of women in Charlotte Mecklenburg each year. Out of those, the police a few years ago were um, arresting seven to eight percent. Okay, that's all, seven to eight percent. Out of those, a lot of those aren't going to, the cases are going to be dismissed, right? Out of those, Let's say 50% of them are found guilty. We also have a big hole at the courthouse where all statistics fall and die. Um, so by the time they get sent to our programs, let's say maybe three or 400 finish each year out of 400,000 acts of physical, criminal, domestic violence. And if there are 400 acts, and those aren't 400,000 victims, right? Um, those are many multiple assaults on same victims a lot of times. But if there are 400,000 assaults, can you imagine how many of these things there are? Mm -hmm. And so they come to me either from the courts uh, or, like I said, uh, so restraining orders are civil matters, right? violating a restraining order becomes a misdemeanor criminal charge. And uh, so they may get sent to me uh, on restraining orders, but that's not likely because oftentimes they have criminal charges as well. So at the same time that he's getting charged, she's getting a restraining order. Um, and so sometimes we have to wait until he goes to court on the criminal charges before we'll see him. Um, and so other uh, reporters, other um, referrals sources are DSS and more and more now therapists because y'all know every millennials in therapy, right? That's like a thing, right? <laughs> and so, and so, but the thing is, and here's the deal. I told you that um, domestic violence is not a, clin a clinical problem. It's not a mental health disorder, right? That means that therapists aren't trained in it. Are you an advocate for it becoming a disorder? No. Okay. I just want no. to get that clarified. So how willing are these court-ordered um, violators, like, how willing are they when they come into your program, and how do you measure the success? Because your program isn't a 10-hour, get all done in one week. It's, it's <laughs> long, 26-week, full-year follow-ups. You're you yeah. know, doing surprise visits and all of that. So first of all, how willing are they when they come to you 
how are they leaving and how do you measure your, your success of this? That's a good question. So um, the program is a group program. Right. Uh, and so they come into a uh, and right now we're doing everything virtually, but they come into an ongoing group. So what we call an, um, an open ended group. And so um, they have a process they work through that workbook I held up. Uh, they have to complete their work in the workbook and finish uh, a number of sessions. So the state mandates a minimum 26 week program, an hour and a half a week. And you cannot, it is not recommended to do counseling instead of a battering intervention program, which the state is now calling domestic violence intervention programs, DVIPs, which is what impact is. And so it's a minimum 26 weeks, but they have to finish their work as well. So, um, so a lot of guys, like I've got some right now who've been in the program 30, 32 weeks because they're just not ready and they're in no rush to leave. Now there are those who uh, finish at 26 weeks and I can pretty much guess that I'm never going to see them again unless they're court ordered back because those are the guys who are doing the minimum. They're doing what they have to do to get out and to comply with the courts and then that's it and I'll never see them again. But um, in terms of them coming in, um, they all think they're victims. So that's where the process starts. So they think they're victims of their partner. They, you know, their feelings are hurt. They are seriously butthurt coming in, right? Their feelings because, are so hurt. Be, because they haven't recognized the own patterns? Is that what you're oh, saying? Oh, absolutely. They, they do not recognize most of them. Now, I do get mm -hmm. some uh, who will come in and say, I've, I want to stop. Uh, you know, I want to stop hurting my wife. Uh, but those are really rare. Most of them are saying, you know, uh, she made it up. I told the court that I was guilty because my attorney advised me to, but I didn't do anything wrong. And, uh, and they'll come in. And what's so funny is I have a box of tissues right here ready for them because they are so hurt. And so then, you know, they'll tell me um, how they were set up uh, and how she has made life miserable for them and what a terrible person she is. And that's pretty much the only time I let them talk about their victim in any kind of disparaging way. Um, after that, we after that first week in group, we don't allow it anymore. And uh, and so and then the senior members of the group are the ones who handle that. They take care of that. And that's it's kind of a beautiful thing to watch the group process work. And that is what works about the program is the other guys, the senior members of the group who are saying, dude, we we understand we were where you are now, but just chill and sit back and hang out for a while and listen. And so that's the way it starts. And, and then when they start looking, it, it, we never know which part of the program or what somebody says will really catch their attention. But anywhere from week six to 10 is where we see the light bulb come on. Which is why smaller, shorter programs don't work because this is a 26 week minimum program and it's just the start of a lifelong process 
of change for these guys. And they have to be totally committed and all in. Um, in fact, so I have a nonprofit too. It's called Step Up to Family Safety. And Wait, what, let's go back. Let's go back one second. Okay. Week six to week six to ten. What's so Ish. special about week? What's so special in that process? Is that just a trend because that's what well, the average it, numbers look like? or is That's there... what the average, uh, you know, when we go back and look, when they do their final exit presentation um, and they talk about where their turnaround was and their thinking, that's about the time frame they usually uh, reference. And so, but, but are you are you able to make a connection and a correlation between the activities and the program between weeks six and ten, and the impetus or the catalyst for the change? There's no no, there's no way. So we throw everything at them because we just never know what's going to work with one particular guy. It's just it could be everything. I have many guys who come in and say uh, at the end uh, they'll they'll finish up by pointing to the power and control wheel and getting really intense and and saying i've done everything on that fucking wheel everything whereas they came in denying everything so it may be the wheel it may be we have a little ceremony that opens and closes each group it may be the ceremony it may be something i said it may be something a, a client said it may be something else in their book we just never know so in these meetings, how many of these other offenders are in these meetings? Right now, my groups are really small because during the COVID-19, the courts have been shut down. So I'm not getting any referrals from the courts. And my concern about that is that if he was arrested in early March or even February, he may not go to court until... Um, well, if he goes to court, let's say in August or September, it's going to all bottleneck by then, and they're going to push those cases out further. It may be October, November before he goes to court on a February or March charge. Um, and that's concerning me right now because that also means he's back at home and, you know, she's got you know what is she going to do she's going to say i called the police last time and nothing happened he doesn't go to court until whenever and uh and so you know that, that i've got a a concern uh about that but right now our groups are really small because as uh, guys are completing and we don't call it graduation because graduation implies that you know, we know they got something. Um, and so we call it completion. And so as guys are completing or having to drop out because of COVID-19 related stuff, right? They're re-abusing, uh, they're losing their jobs, dropping out of the program. And, uh, you know, we're trying to pick up as much as we can financially to help out with the help of the nonprofit, but we can't help everybody. And, and the money's not coming in to help with that. And so the groups are getting smaller and smaller and the referrals aren't coming in at the same pace. So we're down to in some groups four to five guys. You heard so Lisa, you heard Lisa, oh sorry, go ahead Lisa. I'm sorry, before all this, how many people would be generally in a group and do you think that the success of your, your, what your program is, is based on the fact that these other offenders are contributing to it and, and these, these people can relate to it and see themselves in that? Um, yes to that last question as to uh, the group process is what works best about the program, right? So my guys, they're, they're, these new guys are going to listen 
to another man in the program a lot sooner than they'll listen to me. Okay. Um, and so that part of the process is what works. And uh, I, I came up with, uh, with an idea with uh, the help of my staff about the new guys that were coming in, starting a group with just them, because uh, we figured it would be too hard for a new person to come into a virtual group. And so I started a new group with just new guys, and Lord, I don't have any senior members of the group to help me out. And I didn't realize how bad it would be. So I've got a group full of men who portray themselves as victims. So do you, assi do you assign a mentor in, a, in, a, in an ideal situation like AA Wonderful, does? yes. Yeah. We do, actually. It's part of our, our curriculum. Um, and so we'll assign them a senior group member, and they have to complete a certain number of hours of mentorship um, as one of their uh, requirements to complete the program. So thank you for asking that and reminding me to talk about that. So that mentoring is very, very effective. Um, now, sometimes I have to train them on boundaries um, and I have to kind of like supervise the mentoring to make sure that it's not unhealthy or posing a risk to the victim um, because these guys can use other group members in order to manipulate or terrorize their victims at home if we're not careful. And so I, I try to be careful uh, about that and try to keep an eye on that and then check in with the mentors um, on a regular basis. And we had one guy who went to jail uh, about a month ago for another assault. First thing, the first person he calls at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning is one of the guys from the group wanting bond money. No, that's not what they're there for. He also called the second guy who had been mentoring him. He didn't call me, thank goodness. Uh, so, yeah. can I? I would like to go back to something you said. And by the way, there's a there's some glitch going on in your camera, but I can still hear you just oh. fine. Lise, can you see her, Lise? Because on mm -hmm. my end, she, okay. Um, uh -oh. you, you, you talked a little bit about the bottleneck. And I don't know if you heard Lisa and I talking at the outset of the call how there's been a significant rise. And you and I had this conversation because of Corona, COVID, there's been a significant rise in the number of cases of domestic yes. abuse. Yet, yes. because the courts aren't processing them, nothing's really happening. So it's kind of a, a perfect storm scenario, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, so what's happening, you also talked about alcohol and drug abuse. So there is no uh, cause effect with um, alcohol and drug abuse and domestic violence. However, um, when you have an abuser, you talk about a perfect storm, right? When you have an abuser who has an alcohol problem and he's sitting at home uh, doesn't have a job to go to, she's confined with him and his drinking escalates to the point of drunkenness or say he has a restraining order, right? He starts drinking, getting lonely and starts pursuing her and violating the restraining order. So, you know, the, the, ex, uh, the excessive drinking during this COVID-19, although it doesn't cause domestic violence, it ramps up men who are already abusive and makes them more dangerous. And we're seeing quite a bit of that. Um, now, drugs, there is no correlation between uh, drug abuse and domestic violence um, and also mental illness and domestic violence.
And so uh, sometimes certain mental illnesses are going to make things worse and more dangerous, or they may be violent uh, around whoever they're around, and the same with substance abuse, right? Um, but it's not necessarily that pattern, because when we talk about domestic violence, I'm talking about a pattern of controlling or coercive or verbally abusive um, or physically or sexually abusive behaviors um, against or toward an intimate partner or former intimate partner in order to remind her who's in charge or who's got the final say. And so when, uh, when you look at situations that you might think of are anger management or substance abuse or mental health situation, you look at who else do they victimize. If they victimize other people regularly, then it may be that whatever is the issue and not domestic violence so much. But if there's a pattern or history of domestic violence, by the way, rarely does the situation flip-flop, rarely to the point of never, does the situation flip-flop and a victim become an abuser, okay, because of the power dynamics. The power dynamics are not going to switch. So when we see uh, a person being charged with domestic violence, when she has been a victim of domestic violence by the same person before, I can pretty much guess she was actually defending herself, retaliating, or an anticipating an assault. But she's the one who caused the injuries. So all of that, all of that, I hope, anyway, I hope that helped. Yeah. Go ahead, Lise, if you're going to say something. No, go ahead. So I want to go back to that. I have several things I'd like to go back to. But the, the alcoholism, I want to be very clear about this because I, I think the message I heard you say might give people who listen to this the wrong impression. It's not that alcohol is the catalyst for abuse. An abuser right. is already systemically an abuser. Right. What, you're, what you're saying is that alcohol, because of its inhibitive effects on self-control, it only serves to exacerbate the situation because they're already right. under right. the influence. Or okay. provides an excuse. So I just, I just wanted to be clear that yep. you're we're not saying right. that it's okay to go out and get shit-faced because that has nothing to do with you beating your wife. <laughs> no, that is no. not at all what you said. Okay. No, no, that is not what I said. Yeah, in fact, Will, you know, I, I, I use a little bit of a, a little shocking thing, and I'll say to them, so, like, Devo, what do you like to drink? And you might tell me, what, what, what do you like to drink, Devo? I don't really drink, but if I no. do, I'd like to have a glass of wine. Okay, so it's hardcore, so, hardcore, right? So, Diva, how many glasses of wine would it take for you to have sex with your grandmother? <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> My grandma was a good-looking woman, but that's not gonna. Right, happen. right. That's, <laughs> how do you think I got this face? <laughs> <laughs> your grandma did right by you, Diva. So, so the point is that there are some things you would never do, no matter how drunk. Absolutely. Right? Like and domestic that. violence wasn't one of them. I like that. So it makes it worse, and it makes the injuries worse. It makes him more dangerous when he's drunk. Not drinking, or not the fact that he is a drunk, but when he is drunk, if he's already an abuser, it's going to make things a whole lot worse. But even victims buy that excuse because they'll call me and tell me he only gets that way when he's drinking. Mm -hmm. How about he 
drinks to get that way to have an excuse. Mm -hmm. I see where you're going with it. Yeah. Lisa, I see your head spinning. Go ahead. Well, you're doing so much and this is really overwhelming. Honestly, I don't know how you, how you step away from this because it is like when you're talking about numbers, it's, it's overwhelming, but you also talked about funding and the way that what you do, how they systematically preference, you know, it doesn't apply for this sort of funding. So how are you doing all this? How are people involved? How are you making a difference? Where are you getting money from? (laughs) Client fees. That's it. That's it. We don't get any funding from anywhere. Um, Client fees and uh, the nonprofit gives scholarships uh, nonprofit Step Up Family Safety gives scholarships to those who are eligible, um, and so that helps a lot. And right now, you know, there's more of a request for scholarships right now during COVID-19 as people have lost their jobs, etc. And yet, we're not getting any money coming in. We've tried to apply for six grants for the nonprofit and been turned down by all of them because people are failing to see how urgent this is, how necessary it is to fund a crisis intervention program, which is what I want to do in order to address this, this increase in crisis. While my, uh, my folks are 1099s and uh, they've been pretty much laid off. So I'm doing the additional work of my staff while running the program with the crises going on. And I'm getting a lot of calls from uh, from victims during the week. So, uh, yeah, how do I handle it all right now? By a thread, Lisa. So what, why do you think that you're not getting that funding? Why is it not being recognized as important as it is? And the, I the think difference? that, yeah, I mean, I think that, that people starving and, and homeless is going to be more of a priority in terms of funding with these uh, small COVID-19 grants and uh, and it's really hard to sell work with abusers as being sexy. I mean, we're just not pulling on those heartstrings, you know, when you put working with abusers next to, you know, childhood uh, diseases and puppies and you know, it's really hard. Um, you know, we, what we do is we tell people um, only abusers can stop abuse. And if they're not given the tools to do that with, how are they going to do that? How are they just automatically going to stop abusing? These guys are still around. Half the time they're still with their victims. It's amazing to me how as a species humans are reactive when it's yeah. when it's finally gotten to a melting point we generally start to coalesce and try to find a solution there as yeah. rather than dealing with it early yeah. on like you're talking about right. i wanted to, is is there a correlation and i'm wondering talking about the systemic impact of this is there a correlation between abusers and a history of abuse themselves good question so have you heard of the aces the adverse childhood experiences scale i have not no. okay so you, you know what that would be a great topic for your show the aces um so the aces has really really since that started being used has changed the whole world of trauma 
and trauma treatment. And the ACES looks, it's a 10-question questionnaire, and it's, it just asks you about various things that could be uh, childhood trauma experiences. Um, and the higher the ACEs score, the mo most, the more likely somebody is to have experienced childhood trauma, which then changes up everything, right? A yeah. ACEs is A S I S. Is that A A C E S? A C E S. Adverse childhood experiences. Scale. Got it. Got it. You broke up when you were saying the last two letters. I oh, yeah, yeah, but. yeah. And so we we give the ACEs and uh, what. Now, there are studies that show different things around the country, and uh, some of them show that there is an increase in childhood trauma uh, with abusers, but I'm not showing that. Hmm. Okay, so, so then what we have to look at is where they get that entitlement. Hmm. Where do they get the belief that it is okay, given certain circumstances, which means she didn't have dinner ready on time, or she was on the phone and wouldn't tell him who she was talking to. Where do they get the permission to abuse? And that comes from us. That comes from society. It comes from people not calling out abusers or uh, seeing them get away with murder, even famous people. And we do a lot of victim blaming. Do you think when you keep saying the word entitlement, do you think that more people are falling under this now? Is this becoming an epidemic of its of its no, own? No, I, I think it's just um, I think it's becoming more okay to talk about, maybe. And so I don't think it's worse. I also don't think it's a whole lot better either. It's becoming more okay to talk about because there's a shift in gender roles. Yeah. Um, uh, well, there's a, there's a, there we're is a looking small shift at it. underway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There hasn't actually been a shift yet. Right. But we look and we do know that the more patriarchal a society is, the more domestic violence there mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. And it's because of that power dynamic. Mm hmm. You, you talked about the role of society having on this, and it's funny because when Lisa and I were doing some research on the numbers, globally there's massive variance between what's acceptable from one society to the next, even in right. the states Cultures. of North – yeah, even, in, right. even here in the U.S., whether you're right. in a southern state or a northern state or a western right. state, there's a massive variance of laws between yeah. what's, in, what's called domestic abuse and what's criminal and what's not. Right. Do you think that there's a – do you think that there is a direct correlation because we're primarily a male-centric society that that's yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think the research bears that out. Um, yeah, there is definitely a correlation, and it goes back to the power and control. That does not mean that every man's abusive, of course. Duh, mm -hmm. right? Um, what that means is that uh, are women told when uh, daddy leaves and they're six years old, you're the woman of the house now? <laughs> no, right? That's what boys are told. You're the man of the house now. Take care of your mother. So you're putting a six-year-old in charge of an adult grown woman. And of course, that's not what we mean. Of course not. But that's where it kind of starts, right?
Mm-hmm. And then even now, I mean, I don't know if this happens anymore. Do people call the house and say, may I speak to the man of the house? Hmm. The assumption being that he's the uh, decision maker. Mm, I love that perspective on it. You bring that out. It honestly took me to be in my 50s before I could be the man of the house. So What? You're in your 50s? <laughs> <laughs> There's a freedom being the man about the house. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, and so it's very subtle, right? And unless you step outside of our culture, you may not see it very clearly because it just is. And changing a cultural norm can take centuries. It's, it's funny the, the correlation between the subtleties of the entitlement that males have engendered over, over a period of time from childhood versus the correlation of the slow crescendo of abuse that goes on in their own yeah. domestic cases. It's interesting yeah. to see that kind of weigh itself out. Is there a correlation between – I was reading something, and I didn't realize this, that because of the Internet primarily, pornography – viewership it's the single largest use of the internet globally across the planet is there i didn't realize that is there a correlation between pornography and the way women are portrayed in pornography in domestic abuse yes um and actually a whole other podcast you realize that right She's right, Diva. She's right. Do you want to open that can of worms? I want to open Bring up it. anything that's conversational because I, I didn't realize that pornography was the most searched. And again, I, I've been kind of researching you for a while, just trying to understand a little bit more. So I didn't sound like a, a nincompoop when I'm on here. And I didn't realize that pornography, the next closest search algorithm is like millions of results beneath pornography. See, I didn't I even like, know that. It's the most. It's search- also like the biggest industry, it's the insane. biggest money-making industry in the whole freaking country. I had what no idea. What does that idea. say about us, right? I had no idea. Yeah. So, so yeah. there is a direct correlation. Yeah, there is. Uh, it, again, it goes back to uh, a respect for women and uh, values. Um, and and the the other thing too is you you talked about we talked about the aces earlier, um, so at the very least children watch their parents to learn how to be um, adults and to learn how to be in relationships right and so that's what they learn and if they're learning disrespect then of course they're going to learn that women have less value. Right. And a good woman is one who is uh, who serves you well or who entertains you well um, and, uh, and and raises the children well. Um, and so that's how we then define what a good woman is uh, growing up into adulthood. And it really does take a whole shift in thinking. And some of my guys will do that. They will do the work. And sometimes they're going to slip back. And that's understandable because what we're doing is fighting a whole lifetime's worth of thinking and beliefs in an hour and a half a week for 26 weeks. Okay. So in five minutes, Take me through high level. What does the program look like this 26 weeks? What, what is it that you're actively getting to the root of the problem and how do you do that? Okay. So um, depending on the group, we, I kind of customize the content uh, based on who I've got in group. 
And so like this new group, I'm starting at the beginning with definitions of domestic violence, with what the book is, what's going to be expected out of them. Um, and the very first day I asked them, I say, you know, so are you the victims in this case? And they all raise their hand. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so the new groups, the older guys will take care of that, like I described earlier. But And so I've got one group that's kind of a higher level, that corporate group I was talking about, and they can dig deep. And so we'll dig deep with them and they'll bring in outside materials they do uh, they've been watching a lot of Brene Brown uh, you know so they'll bring in uh, that kind of stuff I give them a lot of homework and uh, and then there's the book so this book is uh, the workbook is it was customized for us and it has um, it has four different uh, stages that they have to work through and they have to do a presentation uh, in order to exit one stage and go into the other or exit out of the program. And their peers have to They critique their work, they check their bookwork, and they approve of them moving on or not and sometimes I'll make them come back the next week with some changes. Um, and so they're the best ones to do this. Of course, I have, I have a final say I have to in case somebody has completely slipped by them. Um, but so they have to do their work and they can't just sit and it's not a mental health group, so they're not just processing emotions. We talk about the lack of expression of emotions and how, you know, uh, with with male privilege and male advantages, uh, there are some disadvantages, and that is, you know, uh, it be not being okay to express emotions other than, I don't know, anger and and uh, joy. Maybe you're allowed to cry at the funeral of your mother or cousin or dog, you know. But so we dig deep into feelings and emotions, and that's where Brene Brown has stepped in to help me lately with her work. And so um, we kind of go there um, depending on the group and uh, if it's just a basic group we'll do the basic basic stuff at the beginning and that looks like what is what are your core beliefs and uh, many of them will say that they reacted or their victim pushed their buttons um, and we ask them to show us their buttons which they can't show us because they don't actually have any. And so, um, so then we look at, well, where did you get permission? Why did you think it was okay? And the fact that they didn't make this decision to abuse because they lost control. The fact is that they made a series of decisions until the decision came to, I'm going for it. Those were all decisions. Those weren't losing it. And that's what we start looking at. Hmm. Then we rebuild from there. Lise, we need to connect her with uh, Chris and Mike from The Unshakable Man. Mm. We had a podcast two weeks ago with two gentlemen who quit their jobs in Silicon Valley and started a male-centric organization to get to the root of the problem of men's emotional Wow. Disabilities. Yeah. And so what they do is that they work. That sounds fabulous. I know. It was brilliant. But there might be some work where the two of you could collaborate. Yeah, so absolutely. What, Hook me up. 
Yeah, what they do, B, it's fantastic. They take men who are struggling with the inability to express emotions, and they teach right. them how to be more in touch with their feminine side and how to express emotions without using violence and all these sorts yeah. of things. And they use meditation. That's fabulous. And, oh, it's brilliant. Meditation and yoga and all sorts of holistic techniques right. to teach right. men to be more in touch with themselves. Yeah, that, we have something in the book, and it's called, do you remember in kindergarten where you were taught to stop, drop, and roll? I right? was homeschooled. I was oh, not. Yeah. In, <laughs> so you were—you didn't have the pleasure of sitting in the hallway with your with no. your uh, arms over your head to protect the only nuclear attack. <laughs> no, I come from an abusive background, so the only stop dropping and rolling I did was running away from my father. So that's why well, there this you conversation go. There you go. really touches home with me as well. Oh yeah, and I'm sorry that happened to you. It's all That's brought us to where we are. Thank not you. Not fair, right? Uh, yeah. And so stop, drop, and roll is one of the first things they work on, too. And that's basically an emotional fire, uh, fire extinguisher, I call it. So what is it that you could do on the spot to de-escalate yourself to the point where you can start thinking? Mm. And so it may be some deep breaths. It may mm -hmm. be counting to five or ten. Uh, it may be clicking their palm, but that could be seen as threatening. It may be clenching their toes. Whatever it is, they have to come up with this emotional uh, fire extinguisher. Um, they start learning the signs of when they're escalating so that they can determine what the earliest signs are and bring in their SDR at that point. Then they can look at how to make better decisions. But first they have to de-escalate it, that fire extinguisher. We even bring a fire extinguisher into the room. I can't wait till we start meeting in person again. I can't do this stuff, my shenanigans, <laughs> virtually. <laughs> but even what you're talking about, like that fire extinguisher is something that we all need the skills in doing. Like you oh, are absolutely. doing something right now that the – ripple effect of this and how many people, you know, starting from whatever started them in childhood going on, making changes in their yeah. lives and, and everyone yeah. around them. So it's, it's the, the ripple effect of this is, is so exponential. Well, and, and, you know, the thing is that if we don't give these guys a chance to be non-abusive, most of these guys are not narcissistic personality disorder people, right? Even though that's what people think. Most of these guys are not sociopaths. In fact, you will probably find more sociopaths in boardrooms than you will in my group room. I have a question that I probably shouldn't ask, but I'm going to ask anyway. Is there a color to domestic abuse? Is it, you know what? I didn't even keep uh, statistics on race because it, it didn't matter to me um, you know, and so um, there are statistics that show that black women are more likely to um, to have been abused. But I, you know, I, I just don't trust a lot of these studies. Yeah. And um, so what we do know is that domestic violence cuts across all those lines. Right. And is as likely to happen to a woman living in Weddington as it is a woman uh, living nearby on Central Avenue, for instance, right? Um, it's just that the woman living in Weddington may have more resources and may not call the police. 
And mm. so that doesn't mean that it happens to them less or that they're less likely to be victims, right? Because on the front end, they may be less likely to show up in court. Their abuser may be uh, less likely to show up in court. And we're still at a place where getting a good attorney helps to uh, uh, ameliorate that situation a little bit uh, for abusers. Um, so it's not necessarily a fair system either. But it cuts across all ages. Uh, I've had some one of my best uh, clients from last year is a 19-year-old who's still in touch with us. And he taught these older guys a lot. And a really great kid. And so we've had them all the way from 16 to, I think the oldest we've had was in his late 70s. And so some of these abusers will mellow a little bit as they get older, and some of them just get meaner. Um, and that may be, you know, because of some other cognitive stuff going on too. But so age doesn't make a, much of a difference. Race makes uh, no difference. And um, the only co-occurring uh, factor is poverty. And uh, so poverty, because of the stressors of poverty and the fact that they may live uh, within hearing range of more people who may be more likely to call the police when there's an incident than, let's say, the woman in Weddington who lives on two acres mm -hmm. where nobody's going to hear her. So, yeah, so a lot more of the poverty-associated cases might show up in court, but that doesn't mean that the wealthier women are any safer. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, when you say that too, you know, there's a whole, a whole, whole lot involved with keeping up appearances and shame and right. all of that. Too. Right. In, in right. any age group, in any uh, income bracket, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. She may uh, not have independent income. Uh, her friends may be his friends. They may be couple friends. Um, she may have a lot more to lose by leaving. So what she may do is try to stay and make the best of things. So how do people help you out? How do people get involved? How, how do people find out more information about you? Um, so they can go to my website, which I, you know, I'm trying to get somebody. <laughs> if you have any folks out there who are really good with websites or want to do uh, like some uh, marketing and PR stuff for us, please let me know. Again, we have both the Impact Program, which is an LLC, and then Step Up to Family Safety, which provides the scholarships, public speakers, um, and uh, special programs. So we do have uh, a special program I did want to tell you about called Legacy. And Legacy is made up of, of guys who completed impact and want to stay involved and continue to do their work while um, developing as mentors and helping in the groups. And so they have their own meeting once a month. Normally it would be tonight, but instead this week uh, we're having our third annual, I think a third or fourth, I think third annual equine facilitated learning event for my legacy guys. We're going to go out to the horses and, uh, you know, you can't budge a 1,200 pound animal, right? 
you can use all the power and control you want, but that animal's not going to do what you want it to do unless you learn how to communicate effectively with it. And uh, so we learn about ourselves, um, and then we have um, uh, a family day at the lake every year where the whole family is invited to participate. These guys are transparent, uh, so you know we have access to their families uh, if we ever want to call uh, their. Uh, current wife, girlfriend, uh, whether or not she was the victim in the case, we're, you know, we're welcome to do that and she's welcome to call us. And um, so the legacy is we've got about 10 or 12 really active guys going all the way back to 2007. So these are guys who finished 13 years ago and they're still involved and engaged. I think it would be a great follow-up to this conversation to actually bring one of your completed men who've gone through the program who are now working in the legacy program to actually okay. come on and have a conversation with them. All right. And I probably have some that would be happy to do it. Yeah. I would love if you could recommend somebody who is well-spoken, who can come in and be candid and really talk about their experience before their experience through you. And now the work that they're doing in terms of helping out generate more right. awareness around this. Could I be here with them just in case? I think so, yeah. I think it would be great to have both of you on the call. Okay. And, and we could explore and dive a little bit deeper. So okay. what, one final question, and I really do appreciate your time. One final You're thing welcome. I was reading in when I was reading your prep sheet was one of the problems that you listed as, as an issue with your programs and domestic violence in general is the lack of coordination across other programs, right. big government programs that, that are more, they get, have better marketing budgets and all that sort of stuff. If you had a magic wand and you could create your perfect scenario to solve what you see as the real issue here, what would that be? What would you implement right now? Um, wow. I would like uh, for there to be a national organization that provides um, guidelines oversights and training we do have one uh like uh, every year i think every year there is a uh, a training uh that goes on but there's not a lot of cohesiveness uh to it um but i would like for there to be some kind of guidelines and oversight um and i would also like for our programs to be uh supported through um some funding uh, through local state governments uh, and because right now what's happening is because we can't bill insurance and we shouldn't uh, bill insurance uh, the any monies that are out there are going to victim services right as they should but there should also be uh, a pot of money somewhere number one for oversight um, and there is not at the state level uh, a certain person who's being paid to oversee the certified programs. It's just uh, they do what they can with one person doing everything plus her regular duties. And uh, so I would like to see more support. And uh, an another thing is that every community should have a community-based uh, organization uh, called a CCR uh, uh, and I've just lost what that stands for. But every community should have a community-based organization with all the domestic violence players at the table. And every discussion about domestic violence should include the local person from the DVIP 
community. So in other words, we should be a part of every discussion about domestic violence. When, when you're talking about CCRs, you mean part of like the covenants and all that sort of coordinated stuff? Coordinated community response. That's what it is. Oh. Coordinated community response. It should be a, uh, a place where all of the leaders of all domestic violence service agencies and local advocates and uh, survivors come together um, and make decisions about what the community needs, what is working well, what is not working so well, um, and, and help inform policy and programs locally, and perhaps even funding. Um, and, and we should be part of all of those discussions. It's a fascinating conversation. Lise, do you have any closing questions or thoughts? or? Please. Well, I think we need to bring B back because there was so much that she touched on and it's so, so affecting in our communities. And you need more, a lot. You need more money, girlfriend. <laughs> I need money. I need supporters. <laughs> I need for people to go out there and rally. It's hard, y'all. This is like one topic with everything that's going on right now. And I realize that not everybody's got the time or the energy to focus on everything and to, you know, to advocate for, uh, for everything. So, you know, I, I'm asking if you've got a little pot of money that you want to give away, you know, if, if you want to donate to something different, please, please contact us. And you could do that at that same website because, honestly, we haven't even had the money to set us side uh, to put toward a new website of our own and that's one well, of the things I'm hoping to do yeah and when you when you talk about that all, all of your efforts when your efforts go into and get pulled away from actually performing the resources that you're right. doing to do right. those other things right and you're talking about helping out yes whether it's a service or money if it's time yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we, uh, we're still recruiting board members for Step Up as well. If anybody's got an interest in being on just a different kind of board of a small nonprofit that works in a completely different way and, um, and it's very, very meaningful and impacts directly um, and you could see that if you give me a call or, or talk to us or find me on Facebook on Instagram on wherever and help me with Facebook and Instagram <laughs> if anybody is really good at social media and wants to, wants to help out with that well we can have an offline conversation on, on several of those topics one of the things obviously I know that you need revenues in order to run the program but one of the things that I that I found most fascinating about your program and what you're doing and why really Lisa and I wanted to bring you on is there's not a lot of awareness around no. the approach that you're taking and because I, so and and I fully support this so don't hear me the wrong way because so much time and energy and resources are spent on the recovery aspect of it reacting to women who have been abused and treating yeah. that that side of it I don't think people realize that dealing with the cause of it, the root cause of the issue is the real problem. And if we can get to that side yep. of the issue, we could possibly prevent the proliferation of it on the other side of right. the issue. Right. So you're absolutely, the point that I would like to pull out of that is prevention, mm -hmm. which is another one of my taglines. Intervention is prevention mm -hmm. because what we're doing 
with our services is we're preventing the next assault and maybe possibly even mm-hmm. a homicide, mm-hmm. maybe also a homicide suicide. And so, yeah, we're doing some really, really important work and we're the only people who can do that work with the abuser to stop the abuse. We can work with uh, victims and survivors. We're putting Band-Aids on. We're trying to repair the damage that's already been done and trying to keep her safe from future damage. But who else is trying to prevent the future abuse? And and proactively, not reactively. That's that's the kind of the issue that right. I see with you. Yeah. Right, right. You know, and I think just what you said, like it it made something kind of ding in my head that I had totally forgotten about. But, you know, it affects all of us, whether it affects us in our own lives or we know someone. Mm -hmm. And you just saying, you know, uh, the violence slash suicide, like literally I was living in a neighborhood not too long ago, got phone calls from all of my friends because I was out working saying, are you are you okay? Are you safe? And literally three houses down the road from yeah. us that happened. And there was a, there was a shooting suicide, you know, shots fired. Right. It, it, it affects everyone in every kind of community right. in every social class. And mostly those will go away too from the news, right? After a while, if there's a murder suicide, because there's no, nobody to try anymore to put on trial, mm-hmm. it's, it makes the newspapers one time, And then, you know, and he may have killed the children. He may have killed his mother-in-law and father-in-law, too. And so you've got this mass shooting or mass murder, right? And it makes the newspapers maybe one time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yep. And up to a quarter of domestic violence murders um, uh, are also murder-suicides. And let me throw another number out there because obviously, I mean, I know we're, we're doing a lot of math today. Yeah, yeah, we're doing a lot of social work math, right? So don't check my numbers. This is social work math, okay? <laughs> uh, I went to school to be a social worker because I can't do math. But um, so the statistics show us that 75% of domestic violence murders happen because the victim was leaving or had left right? Or had left him usually. But when you look at those numbers, those are pulled from information that shows that she had established a new residence. She had moved on, found a new boyfriend. Um, Everybody, she had moved out, right? Um, But what they don't show us is all of the, uh, the women who were leaving or who had said they were leaving. And I would say that up to 95% of domestic violence murders happened because she left, was threatening to leave, or wouldn't come back. So why would we ever, ever question why a victim is staying in an abusive relationship Mm. when the fact is she's probably safer with him, where she can kind of anticipate his moves? And where you can do implement your program to be beneficial. Exactly what I was going to Hopefully. say. The only, the only solution yeah. to that is, is getting to that abuser and stopping that situation. Right. So, right. so I said I was done, but I'm wondering if there isn't a way to, to market your services for a greater awareness by 
implementing the benefits that the women who are now living in a more tolerable situation because the man has gone through your program right. and they're now living in peace and harmony, hopefully, or at least comparatively. I wonder right. if, there isn't, if there isn't a play on that space a little bit more. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand your question. So if, you're, if the root of the problem is, in essence, it's the men who are causing this. They're the ones doing the abuse right. and the ones who are doing the, the murdering. Part. It's the woman right. who is the real victim here. She's the one being abused. But because she is blissfully unaware of the of, – and, and in essence, she's acquiescing to this because she's staying in the situation because she doesn't really realize what's happening until it's too late. Right. But, but if, you're, if you're getting – in into the helm and you're able to get these men who are the abusers into your program and successfully graduate them through the program and then they get to go back and live with their wife in a more harmonious space i would love to hear some of the testimonies of the women who are now witness to the changes that your program did for their man well and and my guys will tell you that it's really really hard to maintain the same relationship with the woman you abused uh. And most of the relationships don't make it, even if he becomes non-abusive, because it's just too much water under that bridge. She, you know, uh, she's been too badly uh, abused, hurt, disillusioned, um, is untrustful, and uh, it's just too much for most relationships to survive it. But that doesn't mean he doesn't need to make the changes because especially if he has children, um, he's still going to have a relationship with their mother of some kind and he's going to have an influence over his children and how they grow up. And there's a a very um, well-known author in this field, well-known in this field, who says that if you are abusing uh, your children's mother, then you are abusing the children, whether or not you've ever laid a hand on them. Absolutely. Well, that could have just opened up a new rabbit hole for me, but I'm not going to go down that. <laughs> there's another. There's how many how many podcast sessions do we have planned now? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> do we do a series at this point? <laughs> every Monday. Every Monday. Every, y'all know I love y'all, but I'm not doing nine o'clock Mondays. <laughs> I heard you were trying to get a later start. Oh, my God. I don't get up till 11, right? (laughs) Well, I appreciate you joining us. I set like eight alarms and had two people calling me this morning. I was the one of the people calling you. (laughs) Well, really? I didn't get that call. (laughs) Yeah, I called you just to make sure you're going to jump on for the 830 video, audio video. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm talking about calling me to make sure I was out of bed. Got it. Well, I do appreciate you joining us, Lisa. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, are we doing Are we doing a hot seat with her? We can. Oh, I do hot seats in group. What does yours look like? Lise, you want to jump into it? We just yeah. ask random questions that, we... that, that don't really have any real purpose to them. That's awesome. We have, I, some, I, rude ones. We have some rude ones too, but we'll keep it like G-rated for you. Well, nothing's ruder than grandma, right? <laughs> I, I, I do have actually a question a hot seat question and i don't know if it's appropriate but i'm going to ask it because for some reason it keeps running through our mind you've been doing this for 17 years is that right 20 years 20 exclusively years. with um with uh, abusers has there ever been a situation with a, somebody who has graduated from your program where the two of you have had interactions where you felt fondness or that sort of stuff for somebody has that ever occurred with you uh, you know, That's your I first feel, hot seat. 
<laughs> I feel okay. Um, so I feel a lot of fondness for most of my legacy members, mm -hmm. honestly, because I mean we've just built this uh, this relationship and this rapport. Uh, but uh, I'm never hot for them. Um, I only and, asked because I, I saw a movie recently and I started watching it in, and oh the God. therapist and anyway, so that was my question. At least oh, you're, well, you're, trying to, you're trying to Nicholas Sparks this story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. How has he, how has this gone to this, you know what, <laughs> this rabbit trail? Have you looked into what she's been saying? Uh, <laughs> she's, but she's solved their problems. Keep at least your neck. Go. But thank you for seeing me as a potential like person who can feel romance and, and all this. Stuff. But but listen, I still have contact with two guys who are currently in prison. One was my uh, client. Oh, the, hey, podcast session number five. Um, I one was my client brilliant to go to the prison and do that. Listen, I've always wanted to do that but you're not going to get into the prisons. But anyway, so I have one a guy who's 42 now who was my client when he was 15 or 16 uh, when I worked with uh, mentally ill, military-dependent children in Fayetteville. And so I communicate with him, and then I've got a former impact client uh, who's in federal uh, prison for guns and drugs kind of thing. And he was in my program maybe five or six years ago and he did really great in my program and then back to prison with the other stuff so I sent him my workbook and I am working with him on email on his workbook from prison so I'm making him work even in prison I like what the that. hell I like that. he's got another like six or seven years so I'm like what else do you have to do hmm. you're like a pen pal therapist so, yeah. so that that could be a movie as well. And here's my question then. Who would play you in a movie about your life? Oh, like oh good question. Could I play me? I couldn't play younger me. I don't know who would be younger me or who would want to be younger me. How, how much does this gig pay? <laughs> 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 oh, that would be funny. I got the stories, y'all. So you're picking yourself as the character, the lead character for that role? I like that. Yeah. You're going to be one of those people that you write it, you direct it, and you star in it. And I star in it, but I can't mark it. <laughs> so speaking of jail and speaking of pen pal, if you were to go to jail, who would be the one person that you would call to bail you out of jail? Oh, who would I call who would have no questions? Everybody I know would bitch at me, right? <laughs> so <laughs> there's not a single person I know who wouldn't go, really be? Really? Um, so I don't have a single person who would just bail me out without bitching at me. Uh, but I have a number of people who would bail me out. Now, I have certain family members who would like, charge me interest <laughs> <laughs> um, so I probably some friends too but I do have a lot of friends who would bail me out um, Good. But you know what we don't know phone numbers anymore right that's right without really? my cell phone I wouldn't know how to call anybody and my mom's my changed her number you know that one number that you know from childhood and she changed her yeah. cell phone 
I can't right. call my mom. Wow. Of, of my current Rolodex, Lisa, you are the only phone number of the current, like my speed dial numbers. You're the only number I actually know. Wow. I don't even, I don't even know my mom. See, that's number. it. That's why I would have to call my sister because she's the only number I know. Um, and I do, I do know of some really good attorneys who manage to get their clients out of everything that I would definitely go to. <laughs> you know? Okay, your number one pet peeve. Left-hand lane drivers. Mm, so you're one People of who cruise in the left lane. Freaking sociopaths. Yes, you are. <laughs> and you know I'm talking about you, right? <laughs> no, there's a passing lane. There is a for. passing lane, right. It is for passing. If you are deliberately holding up traffic because you don't believe they should exceed the speed limit, you are a sociopath. <laughs> I don't want to be in your program. I'm actually kind of scared. <laughs> <laughs> you were thinking about joining just for fun earlier, right? No, I'd, lo I'd, now lo you're rethinking. I'd love to do some investigative journalism of just building a whole story around the whole process. I think it's fascinating. Last well, let question. me know how I can work with you to do that. Last question for me. What superpower would you like to have? Healing. Mm, I like that. I don't know which one I would pick. Mentally and physically? Yeah, yeah, it'd have to be both. The ability to heal others and yourself or just to be able to heal your... Uh, well, well, you, you, I've got to be around to heal other people. So, yeah, I'd have to, like, physician heal thyself kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, mostly for other people. It's hmm, brilliant. There are a lot of people really suffering out there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This has been a fantastic morning being spent with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, you for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the questions. You've given so, me some questions, things to think about. If people would like to find you, again, this is B. Cote. She is uh -huh. the director and the proprietor of Impact Family Violence Services. If you'd like to right. find her online, she is Impact D, like Delta, V, like Victor, right. dot org. Is that correct? That's it. Mm -hmm. And the same credentials on social media. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, B. Cote, Impact. Um, the same thing with uh, with all the rest of them. Uh, step up to family safety and uh, impact family violence. Okay. B. Merci pour votre temps for your time. Oh, merci, you. merci. See, I didn't know you were <laughs> fluent there, Devo. Thank you for joining we're gonna, us. Hey, we're going to put an accent aigu on his uh, first E, right? And we'll call him Devo. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to staying connected with you. This is a brilliant call. I'm going to follow up with you after this to share with you a couple of different resources that um, I actually have a sister who works in a similar space than you. In the Oh, wow. Uh, she works with sex trafficking and domestic violence. She's a, okay. a psychologist. Um, I'm going to connect the two of you because she's actually working on a pretty, well, she was, I don't know if she still is, a, a program centered around advocacy for similar to what you do. And I'm also going to connect you with Chris and Mike from The Unshakable Man. So I'll follow up. With I you would love that. to. I would love to talk to all of them. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Yeah. Have a great week. Don't Thank be you. dicks. <laughs> you need Bye. that as a bumper sticker. And a right. Bye. Don't be a dick. <laughs>
Bye. <laughs> <laughs>